This is an audio version of the Harper and Rugby match write-up for the Six Nations match that finished Ireland 19, Scotland 12, and the title is The First Try. Quote, This is where Irish rugby fans just want to see something that little bit different. Unquote. I couldn't have agreed with ITV commentator Gordon Darcy more. It was Ireland's opening set of attacking phases on the Scottish line, coming shortly after a sequence where we went through 13 at midfield before winning a penalty that gave us a 5-metre line-out, a chain of events of which we had become very familiar when Joe Schmidt held the reins. And after James Ryan confidently hauled down the ball at the set-piece before Amal got us within a few metres, we began trundling our way through some carries, offering a certain look of familiarity about us that could have been disconcerting had it gone on much longer. But then it came. Connor Murray stood off a breakdown, making it look as though another carry was on the cards. Kean Healy ran around into what looked like a blocking position, but James Ryan knew to chuck it to his fellow Leinster forward, who in turn knew to ship it back to Murray. You could call it a wraparound without the wrap, or maybe it's an around? Anyway, the Monster 9 didn't hesitate to fling a long miss pass through a blocking line run by Jordan Larmer and into the grateful arms of his skipper Johnny Sexton, who had Ring Rose and Stockdale on the outside, but didn't need them as his teammates' perfect execution throughout had created plenty of space for him to coast over for a first try under his captaincy, under Farrell, of the championship, and also the decade. Not bad considering the Aviva Stadium clock was yet to tick into double digits. However, it's not like we completely dominated that opening spell. In fact, up to this point, things weren't going well at all. Perhaps intentionally as a nod to Murray's much-debated selection ahead of John Cooney, Scotland sent the kickoff directly to the scrum half, who proceeded to boot a clear of the 22 immediately, finding the game's other new test captain Stuart Hogg rather than the safety of touch. The visitors then embarked on a series of 10 phases which made clever use of little offloads here and wide running there to get them into R22 before Clayland Doris provided himself the perfect settling moment into test rugby by jackaling a penalty. However, from the ensuing line-out, Murray's box kick wasn't quite contestable enough and the Scots were back on the attack again. Eleven similar phases later, it was they who won the penalty as Ian Henderson was adjudged to have not rolled away in time from a tackle, though I ambitiously mooted 21 in my preview. It made sense to take the easy three, which Adam Hastings duly did. And that wasn't the only casualty of that sequence, as Doris's day was already over courtesy of a nasty clash of heads in the tackle. Luckily, he seemed much better leaving the pitch than he had as the medics were taking their absolutely appropriate precautions. And from the team's standpoint, we had a perfect replacement as Peter O'Mahony slotted in at 6, while Stander comfortably shifted to 8. But having recovered from the early setbacks to click into gear enough to secure the sextant try, from the resulting restart, things began to regress for us, and finding those levels of cohesion were to prove difficult for the remainder of the match. Sometimes we were thwarted by the Scots' determination. Other times, that determination led to penalties, which could have gotten further sanction from referee Matthew Raynell. But there were also several times when we contributed to our own problems. It started when we tried to confidently run the ball out of the 22 on a restart before Gary Ringrose was forced into a knock-on in the tackle, giving Scotland a scrum at which Keane Healy was penalised for hinging. This allowed Hastings to narrow the margin to just the one. The next Murray box kick was of a decent length and height, but still, Scotland's own debutante number 8, Nick Haining, took an impressive catch. The next one was received in similar fashion by Sean Maitland, prompting a series of demands from Irish rugby Twitterati to tuck the predictable high ball into the back pocket for now. Those demands were not met, although the success rate did improve. 
And it's not like there wasn't open space to be found in that period. It's just when we had it, we were making questionable decisions. With more preordained moves from the breakdown, both our centers, Aki and Ringrose, were finding openings. Yet things like Peter O'Mahony doing some unnecessary blocking and James Ryan failing to notice three speedsters outside him with decent overlap potential would throw the Scots a lifeline. For their part, they were still occasionally finding their way to our line, yet they never utilized the momentum long enough to stop our defenders from pinching it back. With O'Mahony the culprit on one very dangerous-looking occasion, and Stander pouncing on a loose ball on another. This led to arguably, in every sense of the word, the game's most controversial incident. It came about when Hastings fly-hacked a loose ball into R22. The ball had been loose because Larmer tried a little, perhaps ill-advised, chip over the top, only to be tap-tackled by Hogg. This could have been late. The other side of the fly-hack saw Sexton gather before being hit by Hamish Watson and Renell ordered Scotland the scrum despite our skipper trying to point out that he had been hit in the jaw. This resulted in a lot of chatter online from inside and outside the four provinces regarding Sexton's penchant for play-acting. If you look back on the podcast feed, you'll see a chat with Kigo about that, so I'll leave all our opinions to that and go back to the match. Hastings then had a chance to restore Scotland's lead, yet he pushed the kick wide. Sexton took the bold option of a short dropout, and it fell perfectly for Stockdale, who grabbed it and charged into opposition territory. This was where Ryan missed the outlet pass I mentioned, but we still kept possession for long enough to win a penalty as Ali Price took out Murray at the breakdown. Side note, that wasn't the last time I felt Raynau could have gone straight to his pocket. Although it was definitely in three-point territory, I was surprised to see Sexton elect to take them. The Scots had already made several trips deep into our 22 to no avail, while we had scored from our only chance. That, together with the availability of a try bonus point, made going for the jugular a reasonable option. But to be fair, I wasn't entirely disappointed as our lead was restored to four. Three minutes later, we actually reaped some reward from a Murray box kick, as our platoon of chasers did some excellent work, including a tackle from Rob Herring, and we won another penalty in the same position. As fans, we are free to point to the presumably Scottish onlookers making noise as a reason for Johnny putting it wide, but I'm pretty sure he'd be the first to admit that shouldn't be a factor. By the end of the half, we were actually happy with the slender margin. Another impressive Aki-Ring-Rose combination put us on the front foot, but a not-so-impressive Murray-Sexton one allowed Sam Johnson to intercept the long pass, and the centre got it all the way to R22. We scrambled well before Standard jackaled us out of trouble again, but my relief was outweighed by my frustration from having been in that position in the first place. The second half proceeded in similar fashion to the first, as we lost another starter, only this time Ring-Rose never returned to the field owing to a hand injury. Still, things began well playing-wise, as we won, or maybe earned is the better word since Murray flung a fake pass at a poorly positioned Watson, another penalty at midfield before some faces in their 22 meant they were penalised for a ninth time. Once more, Sexton had a decision to make, and once more he defied my wishes by opting for the kickable points. And when James Ryan and his lifters misjudged the restart, forcing Aki to knock on, Scotland were given another chance to pull us back, which they eventually did by three more points, albeit after a six-minute spell, which included a guilt-edged chance for more. We had a few opportunities to clear, but kept handing possession back to Gregor Townsend's men, and eventually, after a series of phases on our line, with a penalty advantage coming, they finally worked an overlap, allowing Hogg to touch down. But wait a minute, did he touch down? His immediate celebration said aye, yet his grimace following Raynell's signal to check upstairs said nay, and the, as did the subsequent replay. It's tough not to feel for anyone making such a blunder, let alone one leading his nation for the first time. As this was going on, we got more bad news on the injury front, as Dave Kilcoyne, barely on the pitch for Kean Healy, also had to go off for an HIA, and he was never to return. 
Church did for a spell, but luckily we had our switch hitter available in Andrew Porter, although it meant Furlong had to go a full 80. I wonder will that affect his playing time next weekend. Two further Scottish penalties allowed Sexton to put us back in the lead by seven, and at this point we were wondering if Raynell actually brought his cards with him at all. It's not like we were angels on the day ourselves, but our guests had clearly come with an intention to push the boundaries of legality at the breakdown, a decision that seemed to present more reward than risk. Murray's second-last contribution to the match was a superb clearance kick that has always been one of his many specialties, and it was great to see it back. Unfortunately, his final one wasn't so hot. Robbie Henshaw, on for Ringrose, had chipped one into their 22, and it sat up nicely, forcing Hastings to step into touch. From the line-out, however, Josh Vanderflair, who had a great outing overall, had the ball ripped from him by his opposite number Watson, and rather than force a clearance giving us another line-out, Murray shipped a needless penalty. And so on came John Cooney, who had been tearing it up for Ulster all season, and not just against the weaker Pro 14 sides either, also in Europe. There was a buzz of expectation around the place as he entered the fray, but I wasn't sure if we'd see the same sniping runs he's known for when wearing twice. Right after Cooney came on, Raynell called Hogg over for a chat after they conceded yet another penalty. Finally a warning, I thought. I was wrong. He actually cautioned him for questioning the call? No card, no 10-meter sanction for complaining, just a quiet word? Things got worse for us when we got ourselves choke-tackled at the ensuing line-out. And this was on us, since we should probably have gone for the one off the top after the previous one went wrong. Then following some back and forth at midfield, Henderson was pinged for not rolling away, and once again the margin was just at four. Cooney continued with our tendency to kick, but to be fair, his efforts were both well-directed and well-supported. During one sequence, I noticed what I thought was a perfect opportunity for him to take the ball and go on a wander around the fringes, as prop Xander Fagerson was left guarding the pillar at one stage. But it wasn't on Cooney's mind at all, and instead he fired back a pass to his captain, who proceeded to launch another high ball towards their 22. On first look, it seemed as though Hastings' easily taken mark meant the aerial route was a bad option, but a quick look at the replay showed it was actually perfectly placed for Conway to contest, only for Johnson failing to make his block appear accidental. Again, this was an offence that could have been yellow all on its own, but again, we had to be happy with the penalty, and since it was so late in the game and the bonus point was out of reach, the three points were welcome. The place kick was Sexton's final offering of the day, and so it was up to those left standing to bring home the one-score margin. Cooney provided another long, accurate clearance off the restart, but shortly after the line-out, Hastings was finally able to find a way through our defence thanks to a good line by sub-hooker McAnally and able support by Hamish Watson. That break got them into our 22, and a few carries later they were inches away from the line. One by one they were picking from the base and going at the try line. One by one they were being felled by multiple boys in green. Thumbs down to the broadcasters for not providing a phase counter graphic, but I made it 26 by the time CJ Stander was able to latch on to the ball. It seemed like an eternity before Raynal went to his whistle, and that's probably because over five seconds is an eternity in this situation. Let's just say I was able to scream, He's on it, ref! at least three times, scaring the holy bejesus out of my poor four-year-old in the process. No wonder my kids are all a bit meh about the egg chasing. Anyway, despite three different Scots trying to clear him out, he wasn't for budging, and while Vanderfeer and Watson deserve honourable mentions, the Man of the Match award was definitely sealed for CJ in that moment. Of course, we couldn't simply see the lead home from there, could we? Ronan Kelleher was another getting his first cap in the day, and while he was shown amazing maturity for Leinster this season, it was perhaps a touch of nerves that saw him hesitate with his dart, leading to Toner being pinged for stepping into the gap, leading to more Scottish phases in R22. But once again, our defensive wall was not to be breached, with Vanderfeer forcing a knock-on, and now that the cock was in the red, we put the win to bed for good.
When the full-time whistle blew, I wasn't happy. That's unusual for me. Even when we play badly, I tend to prepare myself for the online onslaught by the type of fans who seem to think every little mistake is a damnable offense for everyone involved in the team. And for me, the starting point for our reaction should be, well, did we win? And we most certainly did take that box. And there's no denying there were caveats to the lower-than-predicted winning margin, some of which I pointed out already, but to which can be added the simplest facts that it's a team playing under a new coach and a new captain. Even though they were both involved under Joe, this is still a whole new setup for everyone, and with no warm-up matches, we can't just expect everything to click off the bat. I suppose my unhappiness came from a feeling that we have a reasonable chance of winning this championship. Most teams have had changes in leadership, so that could make it the most wide-open competition in years. That opinion has since been compounded by France demonstrating on Sunday that their good version seems to be the one showing up this year. So if Ireland is to be in with a shout, we need to be firing on all cylinders as soon as possible. Well, there can be no doubting a few cylinders went on fire on Saturday. The style of play wasn't as varied as it might have been. We certainly don't want to rely on our skipper getting all of our points in every match, and our scrum looked decidedly wobbly. Changes like announcing the team on Tuesday, training in different locations, and sporting a jacket instead of a tracksuit on match day are all well and good, but they are simply cosmetic. It's the performances on which judgments are made. There was never going to be a negative verdict on the new regime after just one match, but Test Rugby doesn't afford you a whole lot of time to resolve issues after your first try at it, and we have just seven days before a much more difficult opposition arrives at the Aviva. Hopefully it will only take Andy, Johnny and co. a few tweaks here and there to sort them out. Thanks for tuning in. Keep an eye on harpinonrugby.net for all our latest content. Thank you.